Well, good morning, church. It is great to see all of you this morning and get to see some faces this morning, too. It's been a while since I've seen your faces. You have such nice noses. (laughs) It's been a little while since I've been here in the sanctuary preaching on a Sunday morning, and so I am honored and privileged to be back in this room with all of you this morning as we tackle this last question of our series that we've been in, Debatable. How many of you know someone that just loves to debate? Yeah, I see a few hands. You can definitely put my family in that category. Um, My family growing up has had a running debate with one another over um, the correct pronunciation of certain words. You see, my mom is originally from Connecticut and my dad is from Newberry, South Carolina. Um, So there is quite this debate over pronunciation in our household. My siblings and I, we have a good mix of pronunciations from our Yankee mom and our Southern dad. Um, But my mom is one of those types of people especially that loves to debate these words. And so Truman and I took a trip with my parents just a couple weeks ago to Florida. And on the seven hour car ride, mom thought it would be fun to play the game, how do you pronounce this word? And so I thought it would be fun this morning to have a little participation with all of you. We're going to play this game with the three words that my mom asked Truman and I just a couple weeks ago. And I would say that the words that my mom uses or asks us um, are often mispronounced. Um, And I think more so she thinks they're mispronounced by my southern father. So let's give it a wham. We'll start with an easy one. How do you pronounce the word W-I-N-D-O-W? Go ahead. Window. Okay, that one seems pretty easy. My dad, on the other hand, would tell you that it's pronounced Winda. (laughs) My uh, brother and his girlfriend Emily came home a couple weeks ago to visit my parents, and my dad was showing her a picture on his phone of of their dog looking out the window. And he said, look, look at Steele looking out the window. And she said, what is the window? Okay, next one, next one. This one's a little bit harder. How do you pronounce the word C-R-O-I-S-S-A-N-T. Okay, there, I mean, I've heard a few different things. I think most people would probably say croissant. Um, In our household, mom wanted us to learn the correct French pronunciation, which would be croissant. Um, And my dad has to say croissant. All right, last one. This one's hard, and Truman and I both got it wrong. So 9 o'clock, they all got it right. So we'll see what you guys think. How do you pronounce the word? A-F-O-R-E-M-E-N-T-I-O-N-E-D. Oh, there's, you know, some disagreement in this room. I heard it. The correct pronunciation, friends, as my mom would tell me, would be aforementioned. So I don't ever use that word in my vocabulary. That's why I don't know the correct pronunciation. But according to my mom, that's what it is. And we swear that we don't, she doesn't have this debate because she likes to debate. She just likes to torture my dad. But it is something fun that we like to do in the Mathis household. And for the last few weeks here at Mount Horeb, we have also been engaging in some debates. We have taken the time as a church to dive into some questions that are often debated by our culture um, and also our Christian circles. These are questions that we have all asked at some point in our lives. Honestly, most of us probably wouldn't be sitting here in these pews or, or watching online today if we hadn't asked these questions. 
For me personally, asking the questions of, is God real? Is the Bible relevant? What is life's purpose or foundational for shaping my faith and my relationship with God? And so I'm thankful that we're a church that takes the time to wrestle with these questions. And I'm especially excited and a little bit nervous to be here with you this morning as we tackle this last question of the series together. We have been debating in sermon prep over what pastors have had the hardest question in this series. And so I'm so glad they gave Chad and I a break this week with this very light and easy topic that we're going to discuss this morning. Why is there suffering? Thanks a lot, team. Buckle up, church. We're in for a ride today. So why is there suffering? Why is there suffering? A question that we have all asked in some form or fashion. And honestly, friends, there are a lot of different ways to approach this question. But I think it's first and foremost important for me to tell you the straight up simple answer. We don't know why there is suffering. We just know that it is. Very comforting, I know, you're welcome. But if we look to our Bible whose relevance we debated, debated just a couple weeks ago, we see this reality of suffering. In Genesis 3, we experience the fall of humanity. God tells man and woman that they can eat from any tree in the Garden of Eden, with the exception of one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so he says to them in Genesis 3, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. And so what happens? The serpent tempts and deceives them to eat this fruit, and they do. In this decision, evil and sin and death enter the world. So much so that we witness the first murder in Genesis 4. Cain kills his brother, Abel. But there are many different ways to approach uh, this question, why is there suffering? D different worldviews would answer this in a different way in a completely different way. There's one worldview that evolutionary forces play the largest role in the existence of evil and suffering. This worldview denies the existence of God altogether or any other supernatural entity and claims that death and suffering are just a natural effect of the evolutionary process, natural selection. There's another worldview that says evil and suffering are simply just an illusion. I read a story this week that explained this worldview really well. A boy comes to a man and says, my father is sick. And the man says, your father only thinks he's sick. Tell him to have faith and he will be healed. A day later, that boy goes back to the same man and says, well, now my father thinks he's dead. Evil and suffering don't actually exist. They are simply an illusion that our minds have constructed. But I would argue this morning that neither of these worldviews and many other like them are actually that convincing. I would argue this morning that evil and suffering, as I said before, are a reality in our world. That every day we witness deep pain and suffering. And not only that, but I believe that this evidence of evil and suffering actually points to the existence of God rather than against it. For every part needs a counterpart. 
If we believe good exists in the world, evil must also exist. And unless there is this moral standard rooted in God and his creation, we have no true foundation for considering something to be good or evil in the first place. But even if we start from this Christian framework, there are debates in Christian circles over this question of why suffering as well. For some Christians, they believe that God ordained all of these things to happen. Suffering, therefore, originates in the mystery of God's will. And somehow all these tragedies and death and sickness are a part of God's greater plan for glory. For me, personally, and for uh, many others in our Wesleyan heritage, this doesn't sit quite right with us. How could a good God ordain all of this to happen? Therefore, I believe that evil in some ways originates in the will of people. God created us with the ability to choose. And even though we are created with the highest goal of choosing love, there is also this possibility that we will ultimately choose evil. And so we go back to the story of creation. In Genesis, Adam and Eve ultimately chose, because of their free will, to rebel against God. In their choice to eat this fruit and listen to the serpent, evil and death and the awareness of suffering entered the world. We call this moral evil. But I also believe that we can attribute some of this evil and suffering in the world to natural evil. The idea that we live in this broken world. The reason that tornadoes and tsunamis and earthquakes and cancer exist. Natural evil, broken world. And I also think it's important to name today that I believe that there is spiritual evil. That the devil does exist. That Satan is prowling like a lion, looking for someone to devour. Some suffering and evil that we experience is because of spiritual warfare. And honestly, this morning, there are so many discussions that we could have over this debate, this theological debate. But these are just a few. And so maybe some of you this morning have walked in here and you've never heard these debates before and you're more confused than you ever have been before. And if that's you, I'm sorry. But I bet a lot of you in this room find yourself asking this question, why is there suffering in a different way? In a way that sounds a little bit more like this. Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? A few years ago, I did a chaplaincy internship at Prisma Health Hospitals downtown. And I saw a lot of tragedy and suffering. It was a crazy summer full of lots of education. And when I was on call at Richland, which is a a level one trauma center, the chaplain was called to every trauma that came in. And let me tell you, it's a lot. And I remember walking, getting called and walking into those doors of the trauma bay, never knowing what you're going to see. Blood, gore, you get the picture. But what was even worse than that was having to go to the small room down the hall from the trauma bay 
where the family was and having to sit in that room with them and being the only person in that room that actually knew what happened to the person that was in the trauma bay. And I remember hearing children and parents and siblings try to reason with the tragedy, with the suffering that their loved one was experiencing. Bob died so that we could be closer as a family. Charlie was stabbed so that we could be better parents. Anne got sick so that I could be a better spouse. They tried to bring meaning to all these events that were happening. And I wasn't about to tell them otherwise as they were mourning and grieving. It wasn't the time. But I couldn't shake these explanations in my head. They were trying to come up with a greater reason that these things were happening. I think often about the book of Job when it comes to this debate. In the Old Testament, we read that Job was a blameless and upright man who feared the Lord. And one day, Satan appears before God. The Lord then allows Satan to test Job and his faith, but spares him his life. Verse after verse, we read of the awful things that happen to Job. Job loses all of his livestock, his servants, and his children to invaders and natural disasters. Job is cursed with terrible sores all over his body. But Job doesn't know any of the background of the story. He doesn't know why any of this is happening. And neither do his so-called friends that come to mourn with him. Maybe his friends have his best interest in mind when they get there, but when they are given the opportunity to speak, they begin to give this list of reasons why Job is suffering. His friend Eliphaz says, Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. His friend Bildad declares, Surely God does not create or reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. And his friend Zophar repeats, If you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault, you will lift up your face and you will stand firm without fear. Job's friends tell him that it is his fault that he is suffering and that he is ultimately getting what he deserves. Job's friends, however, cannot endure the mystery of Job's suffering, so they provide all of these explanations and conclusions for its origins. They try to guess to have some interpretation for what is happening to him. But church, we can never fully understand the mind of God. As the creature, we can't begin to fathom the mind of the creator. As the creature, we can't understand the creator's thoughts and actions, decisions. Friends, I believe, therefore, that suffering carries a message of mystery. When we ask, why did this happen? We can't possibly know. 
Why did God allow terrorists to hijack planes and kill hundreds of people in 9-11? Why did God allow the earthquake in Haiti in 2010 to kill more than 220,000 people and left more than 70% of the population in poverty? Why did God allow COVID to sweep through our world, causing a major shutdown, people to lose their loved ones, their businesses, their livelihood? As an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God, how can we possibly understand his mind? As finite creatures, we cannot provide a good answer. You see, friends, God sees the whole and understands it. We only see in parts. We have a limited perspective and understanding. I don't know is truly the only answer we can provide. And while that is frustrating, we have to rest in the beauty that there is mystery in suffering. And so I would argue this morning that these questions, why is there suffering why did this happen to me, are actually dangerous questions to ask because we cannot possibly understand the mind of God. While Christianity can't provide an answer to the existence of evil and suffering in the world, it does provide us with some incredible resources for how to endure our suffering. The most important question, therefore, is no longer why, but as Christians, what is God doing about suffering? Suffering is a reality. We already established that, and it will happen to all of us. One of the most comforting things to me as a Christian is that God is not just some dude in heaven sitting off watching us suffer. He's not some distant deity that has no touch with the reality of pain and tragedies and evil. No. The Christian God, the one true God, not only understands our suffering, but fully entered into it. Our divine Father took on flesh. He took on our human flesh and walked among us on this earth. One of my very favorite passages and is in the book of Philippians in chapter 2. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Our God submitted himself to death and to evil, and he not only experienced this horrific death by crucifixion on the cross, but in his suffering and death, he experienced cosmic abandonment from his heavenly Father. By becoming fully human in the form of Jesus, God knows and experiences intimately what rejection and pain and loneliness and torture and imprisonment and despair is like. And while this doesn't answer our question of why suffering, 
It gives us this incredible truth that God cares about our suffering so much that he is willing to take the greatest form of suffering on himself. I love how Henry Nouwen says it. The truly good news is that God is not a distant God, but a God who is moved by our pain and participates in the fullness of the human struggle. And not only did God enter into our suffering, but he has and will continue to redeem it. You see, there's this great redemption story that continues throughout the Bible. It begins in the garden and continues to the eschaton. We witness this redemptive plan through covenants that God made in the Old Testament with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, promising to ultimately bless God's people. And then we have Jesus, of course, in the, in the New Testament, who is the fulfillment of these covenantal promises. For Christ redeemed our suffering by giving his life on the cross. God's original intention for creation is being reclaimed through Christ's own sufferings. And then in Revelation, we receive a beautiful picture of what is to come in the eschaton, in the end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Church, how incredible is that? There's deep hope in this, that one day everything in creation will be redeemed. The things that produce so much violence and evil and destruction in our world will be made new. That God will wipe away every tear not just the tears in the end, but every tear throughout time. There will be no more pain and death and suffering. God will redeem the whole story of human history, every ugly part of it, every tear we shed and every tear we caused. What a beautiful picture to look forward to. But God is not done with this world quite yet. And so if God is fully with us in our suffering, if God is one day going to make everything new, what are we as Christians called to do about suffering right now? This morning, I want to show you a little video clip of an interview that Pastor Trevor had with Greg Boyd a couple weeks ago. Greg is um, an incredible author and pastor and speaker and professor and has written a lot on this topic of suffering. 
And so I want you all to hear from him what he has to say about what we are called to do in this time. Let's check it out together. So when you encounter someone, someone who, let's say, is really wrestling with their faith and they're wrestling in terms of this whole suffering conversation, what is your first approach to having a conversation with that individual? Well, first, uh, Trevor, I, I, if there's a person who's in pain, um, uh, I put it like this, that, that whoever's suffering the nightmare gets to choose the theology. Hmm. Uh, and, and so if a person's suffering and their theology is working for them, I, I wouldn't touch that. I, I, it, they need to get through the crisis. Maybe later on down the road, it'll be time to ask questions. You know, uh, but, but you know, I've, I've come across people who think that they were raped and they thought that was God's will. Uh, and somehow it gave them reassurance. Now, I can't put that together in my head, but I'm not the one in the crisis. And so if that's working for you, uh, then I'm going to leave that alone. And, and sometimes silence is just so important. Empathize. Uh, enter the solidarity with the pain and set aside whatever intellectual con you know, conflicts there might be. Later on down the road, it may be appropriate to say, you know, let's look at that theology. But it, it, especially if the theology is not working for them, and more often than not, I find with Christians that when they hit real suffering, hmm. often that's when their theology comes most into, in well, that's when it's much yeah. harder to believe that God ordained this. Yeah. Um, it's easy, you know, this is why I think it's so important that we, when we're thinking about the problem of evil, we think about it authentically. Uh, think about an actual instance of absolute nightmarish evil, because we have to be able to do our theology at the gates of hell. And the way I sometimes put it is this, any theology that I couldn't speak on the parameters of uh, the mass burial at Auschwitz, where mm. thousands of children have just been gassed and are now being buried, if I can't utter it there, then I should never utter it, wow. because that's real. And so I want to do a theology, not out of a comfortable oasis that I have up yeah. here in Western culture, but enter into the worst that the world has to offer. Wow. And that's how we have to you know, think about the problem of people and think about God. It, it, it forces it to be authentic with this. <clears throat> so it's not just an intellectual question. We, we need to feel this, hmm. the gravitas of, of this as we enter into this. And uh, uh, yeah, and then that gives authenticity to our, our, our thing. Otherwise, I've seen it so often when people are like, hey, God ordains everything, it all you know, for the better, and he, he's still on his throne, and, and the little kid gets killed because he chased the ball out and the thing, and they say, well, you know, they, God must have needed him more up in heaven than, than down here. And, and see, this is what causes a lot of people to lose their faith. It's, it's like, what kind of Abba Father would do that, ordain the suffering of these kind of children? It just, uh, you know, it, it, a lot of people just in utter disbelief. Well, Greg, thank you for your time and being able to share with us a little bit. This is super helpful as we continue our series, Debatable. Well, wow, I couldn't have said it better myself, hence the video. Uh, but this entire video is a wonderful resource for all of us, and it will be available online this week. It's about 20 minutes, um, and so I would encourage all of you, um, if you have time this week, to check that out. Um, Greg is very articulate in his words and um, definitely helped me as I've been wrestling with uh, this topic. And so I hope that uh, if you watch the video, it'll be helpful for you as well. But I love what Greg says towards the end of that video, that this is not just an intellectual question, but we have to feel this. We can try to reason all day on the question of, of why there is suffering in the world. But is that truly the most important thing? Sometimes we need to look past the theological side of all of this and just sit with people in light of where they're suffering.
A couple years back, um, one of my very best friends from college tragically lost her father. He was traveling uh, for work one day and had a massive brain aneurysm erupt and got into a car accident as a result of that. Coincidentally, the closest hospital nearby was Spartanburg Regional, which is in my hometown. And on the day that her family decided to take him off that ventilator, a few of our close friends and I were able to go and see them. We were invited into his hospital room where they all gathered around his bed. His breath was labored. He was not communicative. We shared a few laughs and a few stories, but I knew from being in this type of ministry that it wouldn't be long before he drew his final breath. And so he sat there with her. Her and her family, one of our own was suffering. And there wasn't anything that we could do or we could say that would make that reality any better. So he sat with her in her pain. We wept with her. We loved on her. It was a moment of deep sadness, but it was also a holy and intimate moment. It was a moment that I will never forget for the rest of my life. Church, we are not called to interpret or logically reason with others and their suffering. Because honestly, we will never truly make sense of why awful things happen. But what we can do is we can lament. We can mourn with those that mourn. We can be there for others. We can have compassion for them. We can sit with them. We can listen to them and their struggles. People that are suffering need our love, not our logic. They need us to sit and weep with them, not present a three-point sermon on why God allowed evil and suffering in our world. But church, as Christians, we are also called to do something else about suffering. We are called to share the good news that the only true comfort in this world of evil and suffering comes in the mystery of God. Paul writes this in Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul is not saying here that there's something lacking in Christ's salvific work on the cross. Rather, Paul is exerting that the only thing that is lacking in Christ's suffering is that we have not extended it to others. What is lacking is that the value of Christ's afflictions are not known to everyone. So therefore, friends, we must carry this message of the gospel to the world. As Christ followers, we will experience trouble and suffering, but by sharing in Christ's sufferings, we are participants in advancing the kingdom of God. We are an embodiment of Christ in the world. 
all of our suffering is therefore for the sake of his body, which is the church. And so it is our great hope that in our own suffering for Christ, for the church, that others will see and fully experience the suffering love of Christ for everyone. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, what an honor it is to be here this morning to share your word. God, we know that in this life that we will have trouble, that we will experience suffering, we will experience pain. We may never know why that's happened to us. But God, I pray this morning that we will grasp onto the truth that you know our pain and suffering so intimately, that you yourself came to this earth to die on the cross for us. You entered into our suffering. Not only that, God, but you are redeeming it. And one day you will make everything new. There will be no more tears and no more pain and no more death and no more suffering. God, help us this morning to be a people that love well that are willing to sit in the most uncomfortable places with people. Just sit with them in their pain. God, we love you and we thank you for your example. And we lift up all of these things in your precious son's name. Amen.